You're listening to episode 415 of the UAV Digest. I'm Max Flight. And I'm David Vanderhoof. I guess we'll get, we'll get it out of the way. Happy belated Thanksgiving, because I'm sure this is going to come out after we are all stuffed on turkey. But, you know, leftovers go well with the UAV Digest. They do. They do. Leftovers go well with almost anything. So we got a moderate storyline for you tonight. We've got Amazon Prime Air drones. Um, Max, I think we've been talking about Amazon Prime Air um, now for 30 years, it feels (laughs) like. Um, The XQ-58 Valkyrie tactical drones bringing a drone aboard a cruise ship. A drone light show fail. And attacking a Navy with uncrewed surface vessels. So we should get started because we've got things to do for and prep for Thanksgiving. Well, Max, Amazon revealed a new design for Prime Air's delivery drone. Here's your first look. So this is design revision 2087, maybe? Maybe that. Maybe not that much, but uh, this is the Mark 30 drone that uh, they're showing us now. Which is kind of amazing because we were covering the Mark 1. So, I mean, it, it feels like it's been around forever. So what's about the Mark 30? It's got an increased range, an expanded temperature tolerance, capability to fly in light rain. It's lighter and smaller than its predecessor has redesigned propellers with 25% less perceived noise and due to enter service in 2024. That's a year and a half away. So what do you think, Max? It's definitely funky. It it is. uh, uh, Different iterations have different looks to them. And it is an iterative process. And I've got to give Amazon a lot of credit for continuing to develop the idea, continuing to sort of uh, hone the, the features that it needs and so forth. And and we've seen also the notion coming up that there may be different delivery drones optimized for different situations, um, different environments or different kinds of payloads and, and things like that. But uh, this drone is, it's almost difficult to describe. I mean, it's similar to the previous iterations of this, but it's uh, rather... Well, it's an interesting shape. Let's put it that way. It's an X-wing. It is, <laughs> but there's an Evertol call car, and I'm not sure off the top of my head which one it is. But looks like sort of a rocking chair with propellers. I mean, this is a vertical takeoff and landing, but it's sort of sloped, and it's definitely one that's going to transition. I mean. The original Prime drone really was a quadcopter with a payload in the center, right? And we all know that quadcopters are not, while they're very useful, they're not very fast. And you need something that's got horizontal flight with horizontal speed. So this is one of those ones that sort of takes off and then rocks forward. Um, I don't think where most of the rotors are not even moving them the aircraft is moving not the rotors right it's it looks like the the whole aircraft rotates and so uh it's in one orientation for the vertical takeoff portion of the flight and then the aircraft rotates i guess 90 90 90 degrees degrees. right and uh and then transitions to horizontal flight with the 
uh, the rotor, the propellers um, now in a horizontal orientation. So um, yeah, it's it's a way to get both, well, eVTOL, it's a way to get both uh, vertical and horizontal flight somewhat efficiently. Yeah, the other uh, other comment I might make, David, is, uh, I mean, as you said, they're looking to enter into service in 2024. And uh, in the beginning, in the old days, we thought we'd be there by now. If you told us how many years it was going to take to develop drone-based deliveries, at least on a large-scale basis, you know, we wouldn't have believed that it would take as long as, as it has. And we have a few more years left to go. But Amazon, of course, has some pilot programs operating, delivery programs operating in just a few um, cities, and that allows them to, again, refine the concept, hone it before deploying it in a, in a more widespread basis. And I think you hit the term on the head, Max, when you said iterative. It's been a, especially for Amazon, been a step-by-step process, which we can't say has been the common practice throughout the industry. Usually um, it gets, especially in the e-virtual industry, is you get, it gets announced that this is going to be the product that changes the world. And then it sort of, you know, it doesn't move beyond that product, right? The iteration comes from somebody else who comes out with a new product and says, this is the product. Whereas Amazon slowly but surely has, um, I, I mean, in all fairness, they have way lowered the expectations at this point. Mm, yeah. It's a far cry from, they're coming to your backyard via a Super Bowl ad um, to where we're now making small announcements that we've got a new version, a Mark 30. So it's definitely iterative, but I think Amazon will eventually succeed at this. They, they seem to be determined, you know, whereas Google, remember Google was involved and they've dropped out of it and, and other, other companies, you know. And drone delivery, I think, has sort of slipped behind the whole eVertolf uh, craze. Yeah, that's an interesting point, David. Uh, certainly, I think most of the press seems to be more focused on on that eVTOL concept. People, People delivery. Right, right. And then uh, in, in sometimes in the background, sometimes in the foreground, but uh, Amazon keeps moving forward step by step, like you, like you said. And so I think they have... Uh, a, a real good shot at being able to pull this off on a wide scale uh, basis. We're still talking about smallish packages, though. We're still talking about five pound kind of payloads with these. You're not going to get your sixty inch television anytime soon. No, that's not going to come by drone, at least not for not for some period of time. But we'll put a picture of of this uh, latest iteration, the Mark Thirty, in the show notes at the uavdigest.com. So you'll be able to uh, see this if you uh, haven't. There have been some other videos that we've posted of earlier uh, earlier models that are pretty similar to this, but uh, we'll, we'll put the photo of this one in the show notes. It's definitely futuristic. Let's, let's you know, and, and if you asked us 10 years ago what a drone delivery drone would look like, there would be no way you would say it looked like this. So... No. Clearly, times have changed. So let's talk about the Valkyrie. The Air Force plans to pilots to try out the Valkyrie 
drones ahead of potential UAV loyal wingman program. This was from BreakingDefense.com. So the 40th Flight Test Squadron in Eglund Air Force Base in Florida is getting Valkyries. Two uh, from Kratos, these tactical drones. And they're going to test the ability of the Valkyrie to operate autonomously uh, over great distances. And the squadron is going to figure out the logistics and the infrastructure that's needed to both house and operate this Valkyrie. And why Eglin? Because there's this great playground as far as off of the coast of Florida called the um, Gulf of Mexico, where um, we have a huge training range for the Air Force. And it's controlled airspace, it's, you know, and it's over water. So if something happens, it doesn't impact people or land. Valkyries have been tested out um, in New Mexico right now, but the range that they need to test this is going beyond, beyond that New Mexico test range. So thus Florida. Um, and it'll give them multiple chances to test in weather. Eglin um, is the weapons test center, so there's a lot of experience there. So, it, And the aircraft there will be working with the Valkyrie as well as expanding its envelope. Generally, uh, the uh, Valkyrie is rail-launched, and it's decent size with a 30-foot wingspan. This is not a, a tiny drone by any means. And, of course, it can be controlled either through a ground control station or a nearby fighter jet. So there's the uh, loyal wingman kind of connection. And uh, if, if Kratos uh, sounds familiar to you, well, they also produce that X-61A Gremlin. And you may remember that we've talked about the Gremlins in past episodes. They also produce those, as well as the UTAP-22. That's the Unmanned Tactical Aerial Platform. So uh, this company produces, well, three drones that I'm aware of anyway. And... Eglin is also home um, of one of the homes of the QF-16 program and the um, drone program for the United States Air Force. So they've been firing um, full-scale aerial targets as well as aerial targets for decades now. Um, it's always been the home of the QF-100s, QF-102s. Um, so... Going back to the days when I knew what a drone was, it was an old airplane that had orange on it and was getting shot down by other airplanes. Um, Eglin's been been in the forefront of that technology. So this makes a lot of sense. And like I said, the range in the Gulf of Mexico is formidable. So they'll be able to do a wide series of testing. Um, the only other The only other place that probably has this advantage would be down in Australia, where we've talked about the Boeing Ghost Bat. And that's a matter of there's huge areas of unmanned air area where you can do that kind of testing, although albeit over land, but... At least over land, if you have to recover a failure, you might have better luck than if you have to recover a, a drone that's gone down in the Gulf of Mexico. But believe it or not, the Air Force has boats. Did you know that? I, in fact, did not. The Air Force has boats. Because when you fire a drone into the Gulf of Mexico, where do you, how do you pick up the pieces? They're based at Eglin. We, the, the Air Force has, as a small fleet, probably 15 boats, that they use for drone recovery and 
weapons recovery in specifically in the Gulf of Mexico. So if something goes down in the Gulf of Mexico, you send in the Air Force Navy. Um, so it's definitely a unique aspect that you don't realize that the Air Force has. It's kind of like the Army also has some boats. Um, you know, Navy has airplanes, the Air Force has boats. So it all works out in the long run. Wow. That must make for some interesting conversations if you're the captain of one of those Air Force boats. When they, when you announce that you're in the Air Force, you, you explain to somebody that you're in the Air Force, and they say, oh, what do you fly? You have to... Uh, Respond with watercraft. A fifty foot, a fifty foot yeah, cutter. Yeah. Speaking of captains of ships, good segue, Max. Are drones allowed on cruise ships? I found this. Now, we're biased. We like the points guy, or we happen to have a very good friend that works for the points guy. But I thought this was an interesting article. What did you think, Max? I was too. You know, I read the headline. It's like. Oh, I don't know. What does this mean? But it really makes a lot of sense. I mean, if, if you're on a cruise, well, it, it might be the vacation of a lifetime. Other people uh, take cruises frequently. But for I think for most people, it's a, it's a pretty big deal. And it occurred to me that what better way to capture the experience uh, than to bring a drone with you on your cruise? So that begs the question, are you allowed to bring it and are you allowed to fly it? And the answer is described maybe. is maybe, right. It depends on which cruise line. And this article in the Points Guy uh, looks at, at these. There are eight major cruise lines. And yeah, the answer is different depending on which cruise line you're, uh, you're on. So uh, I guess we'll just quickly run through these. And what I notice is a lot of these, most people don't realize is there's only like three cruise companies in the world. All of these cruise lines are connected to each other via conglomerates. But so if we talk about Carnival, it's port use only, and the aircraft must be stored with the chief security officer and checked out and back in by the owner when going ashore and returning the ship, which is kind of impressive um, that they have that kind of security aboard Carnival. That seems to be the uh, most restrictive, anyway, of of the cruise lines that allow you to bring a drone with you. Uh, and in fact, there's only three lines that let you of the eight major cruise lines. But beyond uh, Carnival cruise lines, there's celebrity cruises. And similar to Carnival, you, you can't fly them from the ship you can only use them when in port. Although with celebrity cruises, you have to store the drone in the passenger cabin. You don't have to turn it in. And if you do use a drone while on board, um, they say that you could risk having your drone temporarily confiscated. And then especially this one, uh, but you also may be facing early disembarkation, meaning that they throw you off the boat. Well, not you know, <laughs> meaning they put a large wood board off the rail and make you walk the plank, yeah, walk the plank, complete with your remote control drone. Now, the rest of the lines that they talk about, Disney, Holland, MSC, Norwegian and Princess don't allow you at all. So you're, you're out of luck. And maybe over time this will change. But one of the things the points guy does stress is if you're on one of the three cruises that lets you bring it with you, you have to pay attention to the local codes 
to where you're going because you don't want to get off the ship and then get thrown in jail because you're flying a drone in a, a drone in a country that doesn't allow it. I guess our advice is if you're going on a cruise, probably leave the drone at home. But if you're going to take the drone, do your due diligence, be a smart flyer, do the research and cooperate with definitely cooperate with the ship because sometimes they're your only lifeline back to the back to the states and um follow the rules of wherever you're going to be flying so yeah and and also it uh i I think i'd make the point that uh, this is the situation at this moment and that could change a cruise line that previously allowed uh, drones to be brought on board uh, may change that later um, I, I kind of doubt that, well, who knows if some of the ones that don't allow you to bring one will, will change their minds. I don't know if we mentioned Royal Caribbean. Um, I, I don't know if we mentioned, but that's the third cruise line that allows them. And their rules are essentially the same as celebrity cruises. So uh, use them in port only, store them in, your, in the passenger compartment, and uh, don't fly it from the, uh, the cruise ship. So, uh, yeah, interesting. I... Well, it's been a long time since I've taken a cruise. In fact, the last, well, and the only cruise I uh, ever took was uh, the Alaska cruise, one of the Alaska cruises, which I highly recommend that. It was just a fantastic, fantastic cruise. And that was really pre-drone on the uh, uh, timeline, so that, that wasn't an issue. But yeah, if I was uh, taking a cruise now, especially going out on some excursions over some interesting uh, terrain. Uh, Again, what a great way to capture that experience. You know, Max, we've talked about how drones are replacing fireworks and how exciting it's been to watch this transition. Well, this next story proves that it was going to happen sooner or later, but we have an epic expensive fail. That's true. Uh, This is from uh, WAToday.com. An expensive event. 50 drones plunge into Swan River during Sky Show fail. And this happened in front of thousands of onlookers uh, at a nighttime drone show in Perth. And it was a 500-drone show, and 50 of them fell out of the sky and into the river. So it's only a 10% failure rate, but still, it, it, I can imagine it's a bit traumatic, especially when each one of those drones of the 50 were $2,000 a piece. They're saying that the GPS signal was um, being cited as the possibility for the failure, that 10% of these drones decided to um, take a swim. Yeah, if it was GPS signal interference... And that's just speculated because uh, they're they're investigating this now. They're trying to understand just just why. But you know, why why would that only affect a portion of the drones? I'm not certain. And is there any significance to the fact that as these numbers were reported, 50 out of a 500 drone show? Is there any significance to the fact that it was exactly 10 percent of the drones? That seems kind of strange. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what that means. But the company that operates these drone sky shows is uh, taking a look at this. Certainly they want to know why they lost 
50 drones at $2,000 a piece. And uh, I'll, I'll be interested in hearing what they do find. Yeah. Um, I don't, Max, did, did it say who in Australia was investigating it? Was it? I think just a drone company, just sky, uh, drone sky shows. I'm surprised that um, the Australia um, equivalent of the transportation authority, you know, because this is a hazard. So, I mean, even though it was over the river and people were, you know, it still 50 drones going erratic is definitely, it, there's a possibility of some danger there. Yeah. You know, it's, but in all fairness, it's sort of surprising it hasn't happened sooner. But like you said, only 10%, you know, there, there's something sin, a bit sinister of just like 10%, you know, it's like, okay, was someone targeting those? It just yeah. it, makes there, you wonder. There, and it could be just, it could be just a random thing, but it just, it's one of those things that you start speculating and you're going, okay, this is just a little too coincidental. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, uh, Drone Sky shows the company, um, Started in 2021, their offices in Perth, Australia, and they produce drone shows of different kinds for different uh, audiences. They have packages uh, besides the the package that includes between 300 and 500 drones. They also have a thousand drone package on the grand scale, and on the smaller scale, they also offer. Uh, smaller uh, packages, 25 to 100 drones, and those might be suitable for smaller events, things like weddings or birthdays or or something like that. I I think that would make a great birthday present, David, to uh, be surprised by uh, you know your friends and family giving you a uh, you know your own drone show for your birthday. Uh, here here I thought you were bringing up the wedding aspect of that. Well, there, there's that too, <laughs> D David being. Recently, yeah. If you for for those who listen to the show, um, I proposed in a very nerdy fashion to the love of my life last weekend um, at a Doctor Who convention. Believe it or not, so um, luckily she said yes. So uh, we will be looking for our hundred drone show probably in the next three to five years when we have our wedding. Um, you, you can send our wedding packages via Amazon delivery. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure about delivering the cake by drone, but maybe the technology will have approved by then. So, um, yeah, and we will definitely have the, we will have several cameras videotaping everything via drone. So don't worry, UAV will have plenty of footage and coverage of our wedding when it occurs. <laughs> Oh, can't wait. The love of my life is back there laughing. Um, okay, let's talk about historical events. Um, I know this is the U Unmanned Aerial Vehicle Digest, but we've talked about all sorts of unmanned vehicles, and this was a very impressive event, and to the point where it says, why Ukraine's remarkable attack on Sevastopol will go down in history. Navalnews.com. So back on October 29th, Ukraine attacked the Russian Navy at Sevastopol with seven maritime drones. Right. These are uncrewed surface vessels, USVs, another acronym. And 
the article points out that, I mean, this actually might be considered historically significant. Now, these uh, USVs skimmed across the water um, with, uh, they were uh, weaponized. They had some kind of explosive uh, charge with them. And they didn't really, I guess, inflict a whole lot of damage on the uh, the Russian Navy. But the reason that this might be considered historically significant was because of the way naval v- warfare will be viewed from now on after this uh, event, because this is something you know really different, and uh, the navies of the world have to be thinking in terms of an attack of this type. We have always been concerned, um, as far as the United States Navy con- is concerned, with the fact of small boats attacking larger vessels, normally man boats. If you look at, um, in the Persian Gulf, we ha- I mean, we have worked very hard to arm our ships for against small manned vessels that sneak up and can put explosives or detonate near a ship. Well, this is taking those personnel out of the boats and putting in small unmanned vehicles that we've talked about this technology as far as aircraft goes. I mean, if you can imagine 50 boats coming at you as a swarm, how do you stop that? You know, and this is, this is modern warfare. And if the unfortunate invasion of, of Russia into the Ukraine has all taught us is the next wars will be fought with uncrewed or unmanned or whatever you want to call them vehicles, be a land, be an aircraft, or including sea. And these weren't some kind of expensive, uh, highly uh, technically advanced drones or uh, USVs. They were relatively small, uh, quite inexpensive, very simple to assemble. In part, they utilized off-the-shelf components, civilian components, things like jet skis, things like that that you can pick up anywhere. Um, now, the the article says that uh, probably this doesn't really rise to the level of a drone swarm, but as the article says, it's halfway there. And, uh, you know, this is sort of a smaller example of uh, what could be possible down the road? So other USV programs tend to focus on ISR, which is, of course, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, or mine countermeasures, you know, using drones to um, detect and blow up mines. Uh, but many armed USVs, but pr- primarily for defensive purposes. Um, you know, what's amazing about this footage is you actually ride above the drone going after the cruisers in Sevastopol um, because they were operated BV loss. Every one of these boats that were used were off the shelf components, which means that we need to start thinking about terrorist organizations and other organizations that can cobble these things together and achieve serious damage. All right. So uh, we'll be we'll be following this. Uh, it, as you said before, David, it's uh, these aren't aerial vehicles, but they uh, are uncrewed and the technologies overlap significantly in many respects. Maybe instead of the UAV, we should have called this the, uh, I don't know, 
the the UV digest or something like that. But what we thought we were going to be talking about, we have broadened out because so much of it interplays with each other. And as Max and I have always said, is this has been a journey for us to learn. So even if our if we go on tangents like uncrewed sea vehicles. Um, it's just because we're interested in the technology and like Max says, it does overlap. Yeah. It's not just all about quadcopters anymore. No, it's not. Okay. Max and I have a bit of a, a, a dispute on this next video footage. So you're going to have to, you're going to have to go look at it. Now, I thought it reminded me of, if you remember a year ago or maybe as much as two years ago, there was the guy that flew the drone through the bowling alley. Right. And that remarkable footage, well, this is a bit of an advertisement, and I like NASCAR. Uh, I know that probably surprises a lot of people, but so this is for Hendrick Motorsports, and it's a sizable video, and yes, it's an a advertisement for horrendous motorsports, as some people would call it, or Hendrick Motorsports, but it is kind of an amazing drone video. Although, Max, you seem to think that it's not so much a drone video. Yeah, I'm not sure. This is, But this is called Drone's Eye View of Hendrick Motorsports Campus. And, yeah, it is reminiscent of that uh, other uh, video we've seen of the drone through the bowling alley and others that they, that, that uh, outfit put together. But this is a drone's high view, like it says, uh, of flying through this really expansive campus. I mean, there is a lot going on there. There's, you know, besides the the, the NASCAR uh, shop, um, there's also a, an enormous and really impressive collection of uh, historic automobiles, race cars, um, things like that. I like that part the best. But there's also uh, recreation areas outside for the people that, that work there. And it just, it's on and on and on. And the flying is... It's quite phenomenal. If you look through the comments under the video, uh, uh, people are just amazed and very complimentary of the piloting skills of uh, you know whoever whoever flew the drone that captured this this video. Now, however, as I was watching it, it all seemed completely realistic, but it just seemed like the human beings to me. If you looked carefully at them as the drone flew by, I don't know, they they just seemed a little artificial to me. And that made me wonder if the whole thing isn't an animation. So I'm really not sure. So, you know, we'd ask all of you, visit the show notes at the UAVdigest.com. This is episode 415. And take a look at this video of the week and... Tell us what you think. Do you think this is actually a drone flying, or is this just a really highly sophisticated animation? And if anybody can find a source for uh, how they made how it. they made it, yeah, exactly. Uh, pass that along to us as well. Just send us uh, send us an email feedback at the uavdigest.com. I'm really curious to know what pe- people think about this. Well, it's got to be somehow stitched together. Yeah. I mean, you can't imagine that's one flight. Even though it's shown as one continuous flight, I was trying to see where the the brakes were. And, and it, it's really not... But, it's seamless. I mean, 
but it's it's it, it so core it, it's so choreo uh, yeah choreographed, choreographed that's the word I'm looking for it's so choreographed that over such a long period of time that it does make you wonder could they possibly have done that but so. it is cool it's it's either way I like it a lot enjoy yeah. it <laughs> it's definitely a phenomenal. But it does make you question some things. And, and, and definitely, we want to hear from you folks. So definitely feedback at the UAVdigest.com. Absolutely. And if you want to join our Slack listener team where we, you can talk about it before our next show, you can do that by sending us an email to feedback at the UAVdigest.com. And we'll be happy to send you a invite to our Slack listener team. So Max, where can everybody find you on the internet? So I'm in a lot of places, but if you go to 30,000feet.com, and that's all spelled out, uh, it's, it's a very simple uh, web page that will tell you about all the places, the podcasts and other things that I do. That's the easiest way to find out where I am. And of course, you can find me at the American Helicopter Museum in Westchester, Pennsylvania, currently of Pawn Stars fame. That air episode, if you go back to History Channel, you'll see um, our museum. You won't see me, but you'll see a lot of my handiwork in the background. A lot of the exhibits um, they show are actually were designed by me. So I'm there. I'm just, you won't see my um, ugly face that's designed for podcasting. <laughs> and of course, you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, you know, as I always just say on Airplane Geeks, if you can spell Vanderhoof. So with that, I'm going to wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving here in the States. Everybody else, we will see you soon. So this is David in Delaware. And Max in Connecticut. Thanks for listening.